Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our holy, eternal, righteous, immutable Father. We bless you in the highest this night. And with what joy, Lord, do we sing that behind a frowning providence you hide a smiling face. And that we are therefore not to judge you by feeble sense. And yet, Father, we confess that is a lesson that we're always seeming to have to learn. But Lord, we pray that as we open your word tonight, to hear afresh, to hear anew the truth of your absolute sovereignty working in the way of providence, governing all the affairs of our lives, and doing so to that end, which is our final good in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your promise of your divine word that we will be considering in heart that's being enlarged and enlivened by the work of the Spirit, illuminating us. We love so very much. We commit these things and I invite you to take the Word of God this evening and let's open up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Reading one verse. A verse of Scripture that is very familiar, and I dare say, so familiar, knowing that we're going to unpack this promise tonight, you might be tempted to yawn with indifference. You might tend to have a dullness in your own heart to say, well, I already know about this. Well, brothers and sisters, be careful not to do that. This is the word of God. This is not the words of men. And so we trust the Lord that every time we open his word, even when we do read those passages that we have read again and again and again, that the Holy Spirit will illuminate our understanding afresh to things that we have read, we've studied, we know, we've hit in our hearts, but yet... We need to hear again. And for this passage in particular, what I'm burdened about is this is a promise of God that at the beginning of every new year, we need to hear this again. Because we don't know what's coming down the road in 2024. 
but God does. More than knowing it, he's already ordained it. And he's ordained it for the good of his saints. So, Romans 8, verse 28. Let us hear God's word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so does indeed read the infallible, the inerrant, authoritative word of the living God. Throughout the word of God, there are certain passages of scripture which seem to stand out and demand more attention than others. This doesn't mean that they are more inspired than the rest of the Bible. Never means that. The truth is these verses are part of a larger context, but they are often cited in isolation as proclaiming one great singular truth in promise, which brings an overarching encouragement to God's saints at any given time. Martin Luther would describe such verses in the Bible as the Bible in miniature. These little Bibles, if you will, would include such texts of Holy Scripture like Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. There's also Isaiah 40 and verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. In addition to these examples, we could certainly cite 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all has become new. And finally, the all-time and most quoted of these little Bibles is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, it must be admitted that there is a danger in quoting these verses in an isolated fashion. When we pull certain passages of Scripture from their larger context, we always run the risk of misinterpreting and misapplying the verse. The aforementioned John 3.16 is a good example of this. For though this passage can stand alone to proclaim the heart of the gospel, it can also be misunderstood to teach that God loves everyone without exception and with no conditions. In fact, that is exactly how this verse has been misapplied, which has denied the truth of God's wrath against sin and his punishment of unrepentant and unbelieving sinners. But despite this danger of quoting these verses out of their larger context, the truth and promises asserted in these passages do afford every child of God some of the richest and deepest encouragement for their long journey in this fallen world. And in the light of this fact, I want to draw your attention to one of those Bibles in miniature which Luther spoke of, a passage of Scripture that is, as I've already said, one of the most beloved and cherished texts of God's Word. Romans 8 and verse 28. We hear it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. When Martin Lloyd-Jones preached his first of four sermons on Romans 8.28, he lauded this passage 
with these great superlatives. We are considering here one of the most remarkable statements that even the Apostle Paul ever made. It is also one of the most comforting statements in the whole range of Scripture. We are surely entitled to say that in respect of the statement of exalted doctrine, there is really nothing higher than this. Here is ultimate doctrine. There is no greater privilege on earth than to be allowed to examine such a statement as this, realizing as we do so that we are not, as it were, students of philosophy or art or literature, but men and women considering doctrine concerning ourselves. These things, even this exalted doctrine, are written for our consolation as well as for our edification. Now, as we approach our study of Romans 8.28, there are two preliminary points that need to be made about this tremendous statement. First, we must remember the context in which this statement is written. Romans 8.28 falls, falls within the pale of a larger context which is centered on the assurance of final salvation. In fact, Romans chapter 8 as a whole is Paul's grand conclusion to the great doctrine of salvation assurance, which he began back in chapter 5 of this epistle. So as we come to read, think, ponder, and study over this incredible statement in Romans 8.28, we must see the promise and truth of this verse through the lenses of our being assured that if God has saved us, he will keep us saved. Thus when Paul writes that all things work together for good, this good has to do with our salvation. Moreover, it has to do with our final salvation, which is our glorification in Jesus Christ. And of course, this truth is affirmed in the very next verse following verse 28. So, Paul then is telling every Christian here essentially this. Be assured of this. Everything in your life is working for your final good. Everything in your life is turning for your ultimate good, which is being glorified in Jesus Christ. This is the context behind the promise of Romans 8.28. It is one of the most precious promises of God to his people that assures them that no matter what happens to us in this fallen world, all things will work together for bringing us to the completion of our salvation. Hence, there is nothing that can undo, unseat, thwart, or hinder what God has done to save us and bring us to himself. But rather, God has taken everything in our lives and is turning all those things to our final good in salvation. In saying this, leads me to the second preliminary point regarding Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 teaches us about the sovereignty of God in the works of his providence. When Paul says that, that all things work together for good, he is proclaiming that it is God who is working all things together for our good. And the only reason God has such unbounded and uninterrupted freedom to do this is because he is sovereign and his sovereignty is expressed by the works of his providence. Now, when we affirm that God is sovereign, what does that mean? Well, this is a biblical term expressing the supreme rule and reign of God over all things. When we confess that God is in control, we are declaring the truth of his sovereignty. 
Moreover, the sovereignty of God means that all things, both great and small, come to pass only because God has ordained them for his glory. Thus we read, for example, in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 11, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. But one of the greatest expressions of God's sovereign rule over the universe is what we call in theological terms the providence of God. The best summary definition of this term is found in the Baptist Catechism of 1693. It says, God's works of providence are the holy, wise, and powerful acts by which he preserves and governs all his creatures and all their actions. In other words, the providence of God is God's ruling government over the world he created and all that is in the world. From the movement of nations to the falling of a sparrow from its nest. Nothing, therefore, is outside of God's rule and reign in the universe. There are, as R.C. Sproul would famously say, no maverick molecules zipping in the cosmos, free of God's sovereign rule. No, God governs and rules all things, all things in all his universe. So then, when we read in Romans 8, 28, that for those who love God, all things work together, work together for good, we must understand that behind this glorious and breathtaking promise is a God who rules and reigns over everything in the world he created. We must see Romans 8, 28 is simply another biblical affirmation to God's absolute sovereignty as expressed through the works of his providence. God is so controlling every event and detail in the lives of his people that he is turning them all to the good of his people, to the completion of their salvation. Now, understanding the context behind Romans 8.28, which is the assurance of final salvation, ending in glorification, and then, of course, understanding the great theological truth of God's sovereignty and providence which dominates this verse, the primary point of this great promise can be summarized in this way. God is overruling all things in such a manner that they turn out for the good and benefit of his people, completing their salvation. Let's read that again. God is overruling all things in such a manner that they turn out for the good and benefit of his people, completing their salvation. This is what Romans 8.28 is all about. This is the great propositional truth of this verse. And it will be this proposition that Paul will go on to expound in verses 29 and 30 by explaining in those verses just how God accomplishes his purpose to work all things together for the good of his people. But this evening, all of our attention is focused on Romans 8.28. And since this statement is a promise of God to his people for the completion of their salvation... I want us to unpack from this verse 
four characteristics of this very precious promise. I want us to see that the promise of Romans 8.28 is certain, it is exclusive, it is comforting, and it is eternal. To begin with then, let's consider first that the promise is certain. Look with me at the opening words of Romans 8.28. And we know. And we know. Paul begins this 28th verse in the 8th chapter of Romans with an expression of absolute certainty. And we know. Now, this expression stands in direct contrast to what Paul stated back in verse 26 regarding prayer. In verse 26, he writes, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. So, on the one hand, there are things we can be absolutely certain of as Christians, while on the other hand, there are things we simply do not know. Hence, in the context of Romans 8, verses 26 and 28, we may not know what to pray for in a given situation, but we can always know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God is working all things together for our good. To say this another way, we may not know the details of how God is working out his purpose for our good. Thus, we have difficulty in knowing what to pray for in certain situations. Yet at the same time, we know the goal of his purpose and what he is working all things together for, which is our final good in salvation. Now, it is significant to consider this term Paul uses translated no. This word is the Greek word oida, which carries the idea of knowing something absolutely from the standpoint of observation. In other words, this is something I have come to see and understand fully. So Paul is saying here in Romans 8.28 that the promise of God to work everything to the good of his people for their final salvation is a truth he and fellow believers in Christ have come to know with absolute assurance and are still perceiving as God's work in his people. But it might be asked, what would bring Paul and other Christians to such a knowledge of certainty that God is working all things together for their final good in salvation? Well, this question can be answered in three different ways. First, there are the promises of the Bible which point to this work of God. For instance, there is Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. There's also Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And then take the words of our Lord Jesus Christ recorded in the Gospels, and very specifically in the Gospel of John. 
In John 6, 39, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And then John 10, 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then there's John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Our Lord says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. By such precious promises that God has made in his word to keep his people no matter what happens to them in this world, it is no wonder that Paul can assert in Romans 8, 28, a conviction and confidence that God is working all things for the good of his people. The rest of the Bible affirms this blessed truth. But not only are there promises of the Bible which point to this work of God, there is also the experiences of the saints recorded in the Bible. There is Jacob and Joseph, Job, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel, all of whom suffered great things, and yet God turned all their circumstances to the good for bringing them to glory. I think particularly of Joseph, whose life is recorded in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. Here was a godly man who saw both great blessing and terrible suffering, but through it all he understood that God is sovereign and God is working all things together for the good of his people. In the crystallizing statement of this understanding recorded in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, Joseph said to his wicked brothers who did so much harm to him, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it, and the it is the antecedent of evil, God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So then, by such passages like this in God's word, it is again no wonder that Paul can say with all believers in Christ that we know, we know God is working all things together for the good and benefit of his people. On the one hand, we have God's promises in Scripture, which bring us this assurance. On the other hand, we have the recorded experiences of God's saints, which prove the reality of this work of God's providence. But not only does our certainty of this promise come from what we read in the Bible, we're also certain that God is working all things for the good of his people by virtue of our own personal experience. In fact, it would be right to say that it was more from this aspect that Paul was writing these words we know. These words are very personal and practical. Paul was not writing this sitting in some ivory tower detached from the real world composing a great theological treatise. Paul's interest was always primarily pastoral. He was writing to these Christians in Rome in order to help them with their problems, with their struggles. In other words, he wrote these great theological truths to equip and edify these saints in the most practical sense. So he affirms 
from personal experience the glory and truth of this promise. And we know from the experience of our own lives that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, at this point, let's get very personal and ask ourselves. Do we know firsthand the work of God turning the events of our life into good for our salvation? Look, for example, at the trials and tribulations of your life. Have the things you suffered brought you closer to God? Has your trials driven you to seek God more in prayer and to be more deeply in his word? Have you grown to love God more through the adversities you have experienced? Has your faith in Jesus Christ become more sweeter and stronger by consequence of your trials? Beloved, if you can answer yes to these kinds of questions, then your life is only proving the certainty of this glorious promise in Romans 8, 28. You see, not only does God assure us of this promise by what he's given us in his word, but he also assures us of this promise by what he is actually working experientially, personally, in our lives. Every true believer in Christ, therefore, should be able to say with Paul, and we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This promise is certain. It is certain. But not only is the promise of Romans 8.28 certain, let us notice in the second place, the promise is exclusive. It is exclusive. Look at, look at who God is working all things together for their good. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called. Now, let's be perfectly plain and clear about this. God is not working all things for the good of everyone without exception. This is not a promise for the world. It's not a promise for the world. It is only and exclusively a promise for those who love God, who are those that are called. In other words, this promise is for Christians only. For Christians only. This is a most exclusive promise. Now, what should grab our attention is the way in which Paul describes Christians in this verse. A true Christian, a genuine believer in Christ, is someone who loves God and is called. They love God and they are called. These are the only two recipients of this blessed promise. Those who love God and those who are called. Let's dig into this a little more. In the first place, according to Romans 8.28, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Those who love him. God is not working all things together for the good of those who merely believe in him. But only for those who love him. There are plenty of people in the world who believe in God. But they have no love for God. They have no love for God. Why, according to James 2.19, even the demons in hell believe in God. But they have no love for God. Indeed, they hate him with an utter hatred. So it is very significant for Paul 
to qualify who the recipients of this promise are as those who love God. Now, affirming this raises the obvious question. What does it mean to love God? I would say this is a very important question, not simply from the standpoint of interpreting Romans 8.28, but also as a matter of testing ourselves who claim to be Christians and thus claim to be lovers of God. There are several facets and manifestations of a genuine love for God that can be drawn from the Bible. First, love for God longs for personal communion with God. We see this in the words of the psalmist as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. And again in Psalm 73 and verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Second, love for God trusts in his power to protect his own. In Psalm 31 and verse 23, David admonished God's people, Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful. Third, love for God is sensitive to God's will and his honor. When God is blasphemed, when God is repudiated or in any way dishonored, his faithful children, out of love for him, suffer pain on his behalf. We see this in David who so identified himself with the Lord that he could say in Psalm 69, verse 9, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Love for God is sensitive to God's will and his honor. Fourth, love for God loves the things that God loves. Love for God loves the things that God loves. One example of this expression of loving God is how, how his true people love his divine word. They savor, they hunger, they thirst for God's word out of love for God. And there are many examples of this. In Psalm 119, here's just a sample. The psalmist says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Fifth, love for God loves the people of God. Love for God loves the people of God. Those who hate, who despise and slander God's people, have no love for God whatsoever, despite whatever claims they may boast about themselves. The Bible makes it clear that one of the sure and certain evidences of salvation is love for God's people. 1 John 3.14, you know this because I quote this verse to death. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we have love for the brothers. We have love for the brothers. One sure and great mark of genuine conversion is love for the church, love for believers in Christ. A person who has no such love has no such love for Christ, no such love for God. I don't care what they claim. We know, we know, look at that, absolute certainty. We know we pass out of death into life. In other words, we know we're born again. That's just another way of saying regeneration. 
because we have love for the brothers. And to stress how important this love is, the Apostle John, to continue quoting from him in 1 John, he gives us this warning. Look at this. This is 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And you think I'm hard. Okay. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It goes hand in hand. Fits like a glove. You say you love God? Well, let's see the love. Do you love the church? Do you love the church? Six. Love for God hates what God hates. If we love God, we cannot tolerate those things that God hates, which is namely sin. This means that we cannot tolerate it in ourselves, nor can we put up with it even in others. Listen to the words of the English Puritan Thomas Watson on this point. He that loves God will have nothing to do with sin unless to give battle to it. Sin strikes not only at God's honor, but his being. Does he love his prince that harbors him who is a traitor to the crown? Is he a friend to God? who loves that which God hates. The love of God and the love of sin cannot dwell together. A man cannot love health and love poison too. So one cannot love God and sin too. He who has any secret sin in his heart allowed is as far from loving God as heaven and earth are distant one from the other. Finally, Love for God manifests itself supremely by obedience to God's commands. Our Lord Jesus Christ made this more plain than anyone recorded in the word of God. Listen to the words of Christ. John chapter 14, verses 15 and 21. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So let's ask ourselves at this moment, do we love God? Do we love God? We may believe in God, but do we love God? Do we long for his personal communion? Do we trust in his power to protect us? Are we sensitive to his will and honor? Do we love what he loves? Do, do we love his people? Do we hate what he hates? And do we strive in everything to be obedient to his commands? It is only to those who love God that all things work together for good. So, beloved, here we must test ourselves. Is this true of me? Remember, this is the supreme mark of a genuine Christian. But this is not the only description Paul gives of those for whom God is working all things for good. A Christian is not only someone who loves God, but they are also someone who is called. They are someone who is called. In fact, 
it is this term which explains why we would ever love God in the first place. Those who love God are those who have been called by God to salvation in Christ. You see, when Paul describes Christians as those who are called, he is referring to the saving, sovereign, effectual call of God to those he has chosen to save. This is a call which took place not because of our works, but because of God's own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And it is important to recognize that this saving call of God to his elect is different from his general or outward call to all sinners everywhere by the preaching of the gospel. Explaining this distinction, listen again to Thomas Watson. and This is very well said. Watson wrote, There is an outward call which is nothing else but God's blessed tender of grace in the gospel. He is parlaying with sinners when he invites them to come in and accept of mercy. Of this our Savior speaks. Many are called, but few are chosen. This external call is insufficient to salvation, yet sufficient to leave men without excuse. But... There is an inward call when God wonderfully overpowers the heart and draws the will to embrace Christ. This is an effectual call. God, by the outward call, blows a trumpet in the ear. By the inward call, he opens the heart as he did the heart of Lydia. The outward call may bring men to a profession of Christ. The inward call brings them to a possession of Christ. The outward call curbs a sinner. The inward call changes him. That is very well put and well explained. So not only is a Christian someone who loves God, but he's also someone who has been sovereignly called by God to salvation. This is, in fact, the only reason we have faith in Christ, Love for Christ, a desire to follow Christ all our days, and makes much of him above all things. It is all because God has called us to himself. So let's be really clear about this. Left to our own will and ways, in the depravity of our sinful state, we would have never come to Christ for salvation. Never. Much less would we have any love for Christ at all. We were spiritually dead Blind, deaf, and full of all sinful rebellion against God. But the scripture tells us, God, in his mercy and grace, before the foundation of the world, chose to save us and bring us to himself through Christ. And thus, at the time he appointed, he called us by the power of the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. This is the only explanation that we are Christians here today. The only explanation. Moreover, it is the only explanation for why the promise of Romans 8.28 is so certain for any of us. God has called us to himself and has brought us into his family and has therefore lavished on us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, among which is this blessed promise. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So then this promise of Romans 8.28, it is certain, it is exclusive, but now I want you to notice in the third place 
the promise is comforting. It is comforting. In fact, it is exceedingly, infinitely comforting. What could be more comforting for every child of God than to hear these words? And we know that for those who love God, how many things? All things work together for good. Let those words sink in. I mean, really let them sink in. All things work together for good. Two questions I want us to raise in the light of this enormous statement. First, what is the meaning behind this term, work together? What's the meaning behind that? Well, to work together is the translation of the Greek word soon ergio, from which we get our English word synergism. The idea behind this word is the working together of various elements to produce an effect greater than and often completely different from the sum of each element acting separately. In the physical world, the right combination of otherwise harmful chemicals can produce substances that are extremely beneficial. So here in the context of Romans 8.28, we're being told that God, in his sovereign works of providence, now, now get this, follow me here. In his sovereign works of providence, what is God doing? He is bringing every detail, every circumstance, every event, every word, every action, every thought of our very lives. He is working together for the good and benefit of our final salvation. What does that mean? It means that no matter what happens in our life, no matter what happens in our life, God is tying it in and bringing it together to form in fashion what will be the final outcome of our salvation, which is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This is what God is working out in our lives every single day. Every single day. This is at work. Now, saying this brings me to the next question, which has already been answered. Do the all things really mean all things, literally? Well, the simple answer is yes. And yes, as I've just said, God is taking and ordering and overruling everything that happens in our life to work together for the good of our final salvation. Everything God is turning for our good. Everything. But does this mean then, and here's the, here's the trickster question, does this mean then that everything is good in itself since God is overruling it to serve that purpose? See, that'd be a good roundtable question. I will let R.C. Sproul answer this question, which is what I would do in the roundtable. R.C., please join us, and uh, you can answer this question. R.C. Sproul really answers this better than anybody that I've seen. Here's what Sproul wrote. The bad that we experience is redeemed in the providence of God. This means that God brings good out of the evil we experience. Again, to say that all things work together for good is not the same thing as saying that all the things that happen to us are 
when considered in themselves good things. Yet, if these things are working together for our good, then in an ultimate sense it is good that they happen to us. These bad things are truly bad things, but they are only approximately bad things. They are not ultimately bad things. They are blessings in disguise. Hmm. Blessings in disguise. This then is how we must look upon everything that we experience in this life under God's providence. They are blessings, whether directly or indirectly. The things we experience which we would deem as good and the things we encounter that we would deem as bad are each working by God's hand to form the ultimate end of our salvation. This even includes the sin we commit as Christians. Now I'm about to get on real dangerous territory here. That's right. God is turning even that for our ultimate good in salvation. Now, I grant we must be very careful in making this assertion. But think through this. If all things means all things, then our sin is not excluded from this. But how do we explain that? How do we explain that? Well, once again, let me bring another brother in who also is at home with the Lord, like R.C. Sproul, but at a much, much uh, long ago period, the great Scottish Baptist Robert Haldane. Now, Haldane honestly explains this better than anyone I've ever read on how God overrules our sin to work for our good. And you're going to be so appreciative that you have this in front of you so you can actually follow along with me than trying just to hear me read this. All right, so follow with me very carefully. Haldane wrote, Even the sins of believers work for their good, not from the nature of sin, but by the goodness and power of God who brings light out of darkness. Everywhere in Scripture we read of the great evil of sin. Everywhere we receive the most solemn warning against its commission. And everywhere we hear also of the chastisements it brings even upon those who are rescued from its finally condemning power. It is not sin in itself that works the good, but God who overrules its effects to his children. And how would God do that? Look at, look at the different examples Haldane gives us. Showing them by the means of it what is in their hearts as well as their entire dependence on himself and the necessity of walking with him more closely, their falls lead them to humiliation, to the acknowledgement of their weakness and depravity, to prayer for the guidance and overpowering influence of the Holy Spirit, to vigilance and caution against all carnal security, and to reliance on that righteousness provided for their appearance before God. That is so insightful. That is so insightful. I mean, let me just ask you this question. Is God's grace greater than our sin? Yes. 
Oh, yes, it is. What does Romans chapter 5 say? That where sin abounds, what does grace do? Grace abounds much more. So, is God greater than our sin? Uh, yeah. Yes. So then can God even take the disobedience of his children and even work that together for their final good in salvation? Absolutely. If he can't do that, then he's not God. And our faith is in vain. So, do not forget that. You see, this is a matter of remembering the greatness of who God is compared to everything else. Okay? So we need to be really, really clear always about that. Now, let me ask you this in the light of everything that I've just unpacked under this third point. What could be more comforting than this? What could be more, more comforting than this? To know that God is drawing all things in our life together to work out for us a good that will end up bringing us to real glorification. This means that there is nothing in our life, nothing, that is not without a glorious purpose. God is there behind it all, working those hurts. He's working those disappointments. He's working those failures. He's working that disobedience combined with the successes and triumphs. All of these things that make up our life in this world are being brought together by God's wisdom and power to one day place us in that perfect conformity to Jesus Christ. Christ. I can assure you, brothers and sisters, that on that great day, the day that the Apostle John speaks of in Revelation 7, when all the redeemed of God are around the throne and saying to the Lord, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There is not going to be a single saint of God there from all of human history that is not going to be astonished and amazed that they made it. That they actually made it. Because you will look back, you will remember, and you will look back at your life before this moment in eternity, no longer in time, but in eternity, there in glory, and you're just going to be utterly and forever astonished at how great God really is, that he really did. He really did get you there. He really did preserve you to persevere, and you did. You crossed the finish line. But what do we see in Revelation 7-9? Who's getting all the glory? Who's getting all the credit? God. God is. God is. There will be no Arminians in heaven. Even the Arminians now will then be Calvinists. And they'll go, wow, to God alone be the glory. They were right. They were right. 
And, of course, next to that, Baptist. So, see, even R.C. Sproul now is going, man, they were right. They're right. No. Side note, I'm kidding. Um, sort of kidding. But anyway, um, no, I am kidding. Um, but just think, I mean, you know, think about this. This is, this is so incredible. This is so incredible that everything in your life from day in and day out, even the most mundane things, the things you just, you just do and you don't even think about, God's tied it all together for your good. All together for your good. Because there's nothing that happens in your life that doesn't matter to God because he has purposed all of it. He has planned all of it. He's ordained all of it. So it all matters to him. Some of those things may not matter to you, but they all matter to him because he has ordained every bit of it. As David said in Psalm 139, every day of my life is already written in your book before they ever existed. This is how we must always be thinking about all that we go through in this world. Everything I'm saying to you. This is how a Christian must always be thinking about everything. God loves his people so much that he will not let anything, okay, get this, he will not let anything we experience undermine his sovereign purpose to glorify us in Jesus Christ. In fact, this is how we need to talk to ourselves every day. Okay? Preach this to yourself. Not only preach the gospel to yourself, you need to preach this truth to yourself every day. What I am encountering today is God's sovereign plan to make me more like Jesus. What I'm encountering today. Doesn't matter what it is. That is God's plan to make you more like his son. Whatever it is. This is the good God is working all things together for. His children to be more like Christ. And Paul, of course, clarifies this truth in Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that little word for at the beginning of verse 29 is telling you he's not starting a new subject. He's just continuing the thought from the previous verse. The good is your perfect conformity to Christ. It's amazing. So, the promise of Romans 8.28. What have we learned so far? It's certain, it's exclusive, and it's also comforting. But finally, as our last point of study from this great text, I want us to see that the promise is eternal. The promise is eternal. The closing words of Romans 8.28 remind us that this promise of God is not grounded in who we are, but it is grounded in who God is and dependent, therefore, on what God has planned to do. Paul writes that this promise is according to God's purpose. In other words, the only reason all things work together for good to those who love God and are called by God is because this has always been God's eternal purpose. You understand? This was not plan B. There's only been one purpose, 
And this is it. It's always been this from eternity. From eternity. Always has this been God's plan for all those he chose to save. From eternity. And that is the reason Paul goes on in verses 29 and 30 of Romans 8 to speak of our being predestined to glorification. This is a promise, therefore, that is eternal in its very nature. So when we think about Romans 8.28, let's be clear about four distinctive characteristics regarding this promise. It is certain, exclusive, comforting, and eternal. But in addition to what marks this promise of God, let me leave you briefly with three pertinent lessons which we should take home from this text. Although for all of you, you're taking home the entire sermon. (laughs) All right, three lessons. Here we go. Number one, nothing happens in our life that God has not already ordained and is working for our good. There is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as luck. No such thing as blind fate. That's the pagan's worldview. That is not the worldview of Scripture. That is not the truth and the reality of life in this world. Everything that occurs in our life is there for a reason, and the reason is God's purpose to make us more like Christ. Okay? Lesson number two. Romans 8.28 is the greatest source of our sanity during those hard seasons of suffering. We should never feel as if we're losing our minds over times of hardship. But we've all been there, haven't we? I don't know a Christian who hasn't felt as if they were losing their mind in a time of trial. (coughs) Excuse me. If we are Christians... Beloved, our only recourse when times get tough, our only recourse is the joy of knowing what God is ultimately doing in this trying circumstance. What does the Apostle James, what does he tell us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we're to do when trials come? Count it all what? Joy. Count it all joy. When you fall into various trials, count it all. All joy. Well, where does this joy come from? It comes from the knowledge of God's promise that he's overruling this pain for my good. That's where the joy comes from. And we must remember that. Lastly, no matter what we face in this world in pain or pleasure... God has promised to preserve us and keep us to the very end and carry us safely home. So no matter what, no matter what, there is nothing in this life that will work ultimately to our ruin. Nothing. Nothing. God has purposed that he will keep us saved to the very end. And this is the promise of Romans 8.28 in its larger context of this entire chapter. All of God's elect will persevere to the end. Why? Because God has purposed 
from eternity to work all things together for the good of his people, which is, again, the finality of their salvation in Jesus Christ. This, beloved, this truth, this promise, this is our sanity. This is our sanity. This is the Lord saying, essentially, it really is going to be okay. In a way you can't even imagine. You are going to make it. You are going to get through this. Because I am carrying you through this. What did David say in Psalm 31:15? My times are in your hand. Don't you thank God for that? Our times are in his hand. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Holy Father, we thank you. And we will forever thank you, Lord, for the joy, the sanity, the solace of such an infinitely immeasurable, precious promise of purely divine origin because it is your promise, Lord, to us as your people that everything in our life, no matter what it is, you have brought it to pass in our lives to use as your instrument to fashion us, to shape us, to prune us, to conform us more and more from one degree of glory to the next, into the image of your eternal Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Holy Father, let us not forget this grand promise. Let us not, as we have been guilty of so many times, innumerable, of losing sight of this precious promise. But Lord, as we begin this new year, we pray. We pray that in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the work of the indwelling spirit, Romans 8.28 will be hidden deep in our hearts and will be recalled to our minds in some way or another each and every day that we press on in this new year and indeed in our life as a whole. We thank you, Father, that not only have you saved us, but you're keeping us saved. You're preserving us that we will persevere. We will make it to where you have predestined us to be.
in glory. Conform to the perfect image of Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. And amen.